Usually this time of year, we'd be right smack dab in the middle of baseball season. My ball, shallow left field. That's gone. Yeah. Once again, it's a one-run game, and that ball is drilled. Unfortunately, this year, things are a lot different. Coronavirus is impacting the sports world. Wimbledon, one of the most important tennis tournaments in the world, will not be played this year. Major League Baseball announcing a stop to spring training. The Division I men and women's basketball championship tournaments, those are done. They are not going to happen. For the first time in a long time, America has had to experience a summer with a lot less action. But now, some athletes are starting to tiptoe their way back onto the field and the court. So today we're going to break down what that actually looks like and what the concerns are. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Oscar Mayer Natural. It was mid-March of this year when businesses around the U.S. started closing and states started giving stay-at-home orders. Sports leagues across the country decided they had to follow suit. When a Utah Jazz basketball player tested positive for COVID-19, the NBA suspended all games for the entire season. Shortly after that, Major League Soccer hit pause, as did the National Women's Soccer League. Major League Baseball not only canceled the rest of its spring training games, it also postponed its regular season too. And so did a bunch of other sports leagues throughout the U.S. and the world. That was in part to ensure that people were social distancing. Large crowds in large arenas cheering and chanting without masks was and still is a big no-no. But this was also to ensure the safety of the athletes, to make sure they weren't spreading the illness among themselves mid-game. Now, after a few months, though little by little, some sports leagues are slowly bringing things back. The first U.S. sports league to make its big return was, drumroll please, the National Women's Soccer League. Instead of coming back in full force, though, the league decided to consolidate the season into a single month-long tournament. It began in Utah a couple of weeks ago. Eight league clubs, two arenas, no fans. So what's that like? It's quiet, and you can hear everything that's going on on the field. This is two-time World Cup champion Kelly O'Hara. I am a defender on the Utah Royals football club and also the U.S. Women's National Team. Um, I'm also a brand-new podcast host for Just Women's Sports. What makes this tournament different from others? Oh, gosh. There's a lot of things um, that make it different. This has never been done before, playing sports while there is a global pandemic still going on in a lot of areas. Completely different protocol. You know, this is the first time we've ever had a tournament instead of a season. All the teams are in Utah. We're all in lockdown. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of newness to all of this. O'Hare said that back in March, when the league first put games on hold, the players were prepared to take the field literally at any moment. When everything shut down for two weeks, I was thinking, oh, we'll be back in like a month or two. So I'm going to stay as game fit as possible. And I was kind of going pretty hard, running, doing a lot, trying to stay ready. And then when the reality of the situation set in, I realized I was like, all right, I need to kind of take a step back. That all changed when the National Women's Soccer League said, hey, let's try this tournament instead. Now that we're in 
bubble protocol, as we like to call it, and that means the tournament has started, all the teams have come to Utah. We are only allowed to be at our place of residence, which for some teams is a hotel. We're in apartments because I'm part of Utah and we live here. And at the facility and training, at, at practice, being in the bubble, we get tested every fourth day. So it's, there's been a lot of nose swabs and just, just making sure that we all continue to test negative and stay as safe as possible. But O'Hara is impressed with how the players have handled all the newness. A lot of us were concerned about physically being ready to play in a World Cup-style tournament with only a couple weeks of preparation in team training. And thankfully, people have been smart. Like myself, I actually haven't played any games yet. Hopefully, I'll play next game because I just had a little bit of a quad issue. Just trying to be smart and take care of that. So it definitely wasn't easy, but... I commend everybody for how much effort they put into getting creative and trying to stay fit and trying to stay as ready as possible because we were all kind of at home, not knowing when and if we were going to get a call, like something's happening, we're going to play, that sort of thing. So we've all just kind of had to stay on our toes. We should point out that not all players have come back for the tournament. Megan Rapino, for example, is sitting this one out though she hasn't explicitly said why. And Orlando Pride had to pull out of the tournament after multiple players and staffers tested positive for COVID-19. And while leagues determine whether or not to restart and what those protocols should be, doctors remind us that there's still a lot we don't know about COVID-19 and what happens to those who get it. I'm Dr. Jonathan Kim, Chief of Sports Cardiology in the Division of Cardiology at Emory University. Emory is based in Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Kim works with a ton of Atlanta-based sports teams. I do work for the Falcons, the Hawks, and the Braves. And of course, I'm at Emory, so Emory University for the student-athletes. We're a Division III university here. I also perform the same role for Georgia Tech Sports Medicine in their athletic department. So it keep, yeah, certainly keeps That's me busy. And, uh, and over the last few months, it's, it's become extremely busy. Especially because one of Dr. Kim's new jobs is figuring out when athletes infected with COVID-19 can get back in the game. What we've learned about COVID-19 is that it really extends to different areas of specialty, certainly multiple organ systems. There really isn't a lot of data out there on how much COVID-19 impacts people in the long term. And for athletes who are pushing their bodies to the limit, there is a lot of concern. What we are seeing amongst sicker patients with COVID who are hospitalized is a very high burden of cardiac injury associated with that infection. We're still trying to learn exactly what the mechanisms are, but the bottom line is that's, that's what we're seeing, much higher degree than any other viral type infection. And so when you think about athletes, the worry of that type of injury is something called myocarditis, where there's active inflammation and viral invasion within the heart. And when you have that exercise, intense exercise training in somebody who has active myocarditis can make that inflammation worse. And you can imagine if you have all the inflammation going on in the heart, that can be a dangerous setup for arrhythmias and even sudden death. And so uh, myocarditis is a, one of the common causes of sudden cardiac death. And what we don't know right now is in the athlete or patient who is not as sick, 
even the asymptomatic ones, but certainly the ones who have milder symptoms. So you're sick at home, but you clearly know you don't need to be hospitalized. Is there any degree of that same type injury? So maybe it's not as bad as what we're seeing in the hospital, but is it still much you know, relatively higher compared to somebody who just has to stay home because they have the flu? And we don't know the answer to that, but because there's this, the concern that we're seeing among these sicker patients, we're taking it very seriously. In the meantime, Dr. Kim says he's pushing a conservative approach, one that involves a lot of testing and heart monitoring before letting athletes back on the field. The last thing you want to do is to uh, be a quote-unquote cowboy and just say, oh, you know, they're, they're, they just had it mild. Um, let, we can just let them back on the field because all it takes is one terrible outcome to recognize that you were too aggressive. We would rather be conservative and see the data and see that, you know what, X number of athletes have had this testing across different sports, different ages. None of them are showing evidence of underlying heart injury. So now we can start backing off on what we're testing. It's going to take some time to obtain those data, though. Like we said, in the meantime, organizations like the National Women's Soccer League are figuring out how to safely restart Major League Sports amid a global pandemic. Other leagues, including Major League Soccer, are also starting to head back to the field. But remember, there's no one government body deciding when and how sports should restart. So leagues are having to come up with these guidelines themselves. And this week, Wired.com reported that one sport whose guidelines experts were most impressed with was actually roller derby, specifically the Women's Flat Track Derby Association. I am Erica Van Stone, the executive director of the Women's Flat Track Derby Association. The WFTDA has over 450 groups across 23 countries. And to be clear, even though it has the name women in the title, their gender policy allows for the inclusion of a spectrum of genders in the sport. Like we said, experts have pointed to the WFTDA Roller Derby Return to Play guidelines as a good example for other leagues to follow, in part because they created a detailed tiered system that gives very clear benchmarks for the level of activity allowed at each tier. We spent the majority of our time, as we were discussing competitive play in early March, Asking, we formed a COVID task force of folks from around the world whose job it was to just give us information. So folks would filter information to us from the UK, from Germany, from Australia, from New Zealand, and they would say, here's what our government's telling us today. So we got this pile of information that we had amassed and we looked across it and we said, you know what? None of this is consistent. All of it is conjecture. And the really only thing in here that helps us out at all is the science. So that is what we decided to focus on. And it was in early mid-April that we knew we needed to get some epidemiologists, frontline workers, healthcare professionals into our conversations. So we put out the call in the beginning of April to the community and we had a handful of really super people step forward and say, I, I think I have the expertise that you're looking for. So why does Van Stone think experts are so impressed with their plan? I think it's because we don't pull any punches when we're talking about health and safety within our sport. And that is a real challenge. The difference that we have with our plan that other sports are taking is that we are not satisfied 
we are not interested in putting our athletes, our community members in harm's way. So all of the plans came out of that. And I think the tactic that most sports are taking, certainly in America, but also globally, is that they want to see a return as quickly as possible. They want to use sports to leverage some sort of feeling of normalcy after the pandemic. And Roller Derby, I think, has been so meaningful and impactful to those of us who participate in the sport that it's really hard for us to think about that contributing to something so potentially deadly or dangerous. And so it is because we love what we do so much that we don't want to put others at risk. That's one reason Vanstone says its guidelines are so robust. But the other reason has to do with the infrastructure of the sport itself. We, in essence, are the Players Association and the governing body rolled into one organization. And so if you watch the conversations with Major League Baseball roll out over time, there was a lot of negotiation between the Players Association and the MLB. Those conversations happen with us internally as one unit. So it is not a collection of lawyers talking to one another across a bar bargaining table. It is decisions being made by and for the participants of the sport. So I think our decision making naturally comes to a different conclusion because we're driven in a completely different way by conversations that happen in completely different ways to other sports. I think from the outside, the onlooker might say, well, but major league sports are potentially losing all of this money. Well, WFTDA Roller Derby is an amateur sport. We're certainly a smaller sport in many ways, but the impacts across all of our entities over the last three months has been nearly, actually I should say now, more than a third of our revenue wiped away in just three months. So sports teams of all sizes, even those that are returning, have been and are still being impacted by the pandemic. And rigorous guidelines and return-to-play plans don't take away from the fact that this is a tough time for athletes. I miss playing roller derby, really just miss playing roller derby. And it is something that I never thought that I would get to do with my body. And as a woman, I think coming into the sports landscape, I'm a Gen Xer. And so when I was growing up, you had soccer or softball and maybe basketball. And that's really what you were offered as a woman growing up. And I think as I've grown into womanhood within the sport of roller derby, the idea of what I am capable of achieving on skates or off skates, but primarily on skates for the sport, I just really overwhelmed myself with the idea that these were things that I could do that I just didn't know was possible. And so I think the knowledge of that is what drives us as a sport. And so it is not just around COVID, it is around the Black Lives Matter movement. It is advocating for transgender health in sports. It is making sure that when we say we are inclusive, we're constantly looking at ourselves and doing the work to make sure that we're a sport that can be reflective of whomever wants to participate with us. Because we all want everyone to have that exact same feeling really 
being able to figure out that you can do something that you just never thought you'd be able to do. And so it's that set of values where we feel like it is so worth preserving that we're willing to give it up for as long as we have to, to make sure that it survives, that our community survives, that our community's communities survive. And that's just how we make our decisions as a sport. So what's the skim? After sports leagues around the world shut down the field and court in the midst of a global pandemic, slowly but surely, some are starting to play ball again, or at least plotting their return. Leagues like the WFTDA Roller Derby are being praised for clear-cut return-to-play plans that took a ton of consideration, but also come with big financial risks as players remain benched. And for soccer stars like Kelly O'Hara, the entire way they play the game has changed, and it involves 100% more nasal swabs. Even with the precaution leagues are taking, some players are still testing positive. For example, this week, Major League Soccer, the professional men's league in the United States, started its mini-tournament in Florida. But on Monday, FC Dallas was pulled after 10 of its players plus a staffer tested positive for the virus. Those diagnoses are something that doctors like Jonathan Kim are keeping a close eye on, in part because we still don't know the long-term impacts of COVID-19 on anyone, including athletes. And long-term impacts from the illness could also impact the rest of their careers. Coming up, while the world has been coping with the global COVID-19 pandemic, a major political upheaval is underway in Hong Kong. We'll explain why that's a big deal after the break. HQers love ideas for making lunch at home. Because lunch can get pricey. Like $15 salad pricey. Which is why we're happy we found Oscar Mayer Natural. Their turkey cold cuts make for delicious sandwiches without additives like nitrates, nitrites, or antibiotics. Plus, they have bacon, which is a great way to start your day. Find them in the prepackaged meat aisle of your grocery store. And go to oscarmeyer.com to learn more. That's O-S-C-A-R-M-A-Y-E-R.com. The time for fireworks in the U.S. may be over, but in Hong Kong, the political fireworks are off to a fresh start. I just want to say to the international community that this is the end of Hong Kong. This is the end of one country, two system. Make no mistake about it. That was a pro-democracy Hong Kong lawmaker named Dennis Kwok back in May, warning about a new bill that was about to become the law of the land. It officially took effect last week after passing in China, and it allows police in Hong Kong to crack down on free speech. Here's why that's a big deal. Remember, Hong Kong is technically a special administrative region of China. That means it's got a special relationship with the mainland, and it's supposed to maintain a certain degree of autonomy. See, until 1997, Hong Kong actually belonged to the United Kingdom. For decades, it leased Hong Kong from China. But that year, British officials handed its colony back to China with a major condition. China had to wait 50 years for that handover to truly take effect. Until then, according to this agreement, people in Hong Kong could keep certain freedoms, including freedom of the press and assembly, as well as enjoy a capitalist economy different from China's communist rule, and even have unrestricted access to the internet something people in mainland China definitely don't get. 
The relationship between Hong Kong and China is a policy known as one country, two systems. But like you heard Dennis Kwok say earlier, many feel like it's becoming one country, one system. Because over the last year, the Chinese government has found new ways to retake control ahead of that 50-year deadline. That's the sound of Hong Kong protesters clashing with police last year, when pro-democracy protesters took to the streets to demonstrate in part against a different proposed law in Hong Kong, one that would have allowed for some suspected criminals in Hong Kong to be sent to China for trial. Airports, malls, and universities became battlegrounds as some demonstrations turned deadly. The protests also caused deep divisions within the Hong Kong community and split apart the city with some residents calling for more democratic rights and others calling for stability and an end to the protests. Now those tensions are continuing to bubble over even more with this new law, which gives the Chinese government more power to crack down on political crimes, including things like protests against the Chinese government. And it gives sweeping power to police to spy on citizens, conduct searches without warrants, and take away people's property. The impact of this new law has been immediate. Literally, reports say life in Hong Kong has changed almost overnight. Now, some anti-government demonstrators who've been arrested also got their DNA swabbed, something that's pretty unprecedented. Other ways life has changed? more residents are now deleting their social media accounts out of fear of being punished because of their posts. Government officials are also pulling pro-democracy books from library shelves. And restaurants and small businesses are removing symbols of support for protesters. Pro-democracy groups that have gained so much attention over the past year have started to break up. Now in Hong Kong, you can be arrested just for waving a certain flag or even wearing a certain t-shirt. Experts say that the timing of this is not surprising. That since other countries have been a bit distracted by the global pandemic, China hoped that the world might be too focused on COVID-19 to pay attention. As a reminder, it hasn't been a great year for China. The government's handling of the COVID-19 outbreak has drawn criticism both at home and abroad. And its economy has continued to slow down. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is watching the unfolding dynamic closely. In the UK, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has offered the 3 million Hong Kong residents who have what's called a British National Overseas Passport, or are eligible to get one, the chance to get up and leave for the United Kingdom. And in the US last week, lawmakers in Congress passed a bill that would punish people and banks that do business with Chinese officials who've pushed for encroaching on Hong Kong's autonomy. President Trump has also weighed in. Here he is back in May. I am directing my administration to begin the process of eliminating policy exemptions that give Hong Kong different and special treatment. What that means is the administration will roll back Hong Kong's special trading status with the U.S. Reminder, the U.S. treats Hong Kong differently and with fewer restrictions than China when it comes to trade. But now that China is interfering in Hong Kong's business, the administration is rolling back that special status. Even social media companies are taking a stance. Until now, Hong Kong authorities have tried to crack down on anti-China sentiment, 
in part by trying to access citizens' online data. But for now, tech giants like Facebook and Google are saying, sorry, can't help you, and are ignoring their requests. Despite all this global outrage, the Chinese government is saying, sorry, not sorry, and warning other countries not to get involved. Life in Hong Kong was already tumultuous, and 2019 was marked by constant protests. When you throw a global pandemic and this brand new law into the mix, it's even scarier, with many protesters retreating in fear. For residents who have been alarmed by the severity of Hong Kong's protests in the past, this new law may offer a sense of security. But for many, this represents the Chinese government's boldest step yet in walking back the freedoms people in Hong Kong were owed for another 27 years, and narrowing the gap between the one country and its two systems. Before we go, we want to talk to you about getting into some good trouble. My philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, yeah. not just, yeah. say something, yeah. do something, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. It's a new documentary about the life of congressman and longtime civil rights activist John Lewis called John Lewis, Good Trouble. The documentary explores Lewis's life from his early beginnings as the son of sharecroppers in Alabama, to his time leading civil rights marches and protests throughout the South, and finally as a 17-term member of Congress. My father had saved $300, and a man sold him 110 acres of land. We still own this land today. We used to raise a lot of chickens where I grew up on this farm. By the way, this is a John Lewis classic. And I would start preaching to those chickens. They would bow their heads. They would shake their heads. They never quite said amen. But they tended to listen to me much better than some of my colleagues on the other side listen to me today in the Congress. One of the defining moments of Lewis's legacy happened in 1965. Lewis was just 25 when he set out to lead a historic march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. That day, state troopers attacked marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, including Lewis. He survived with a skull fracture. But that march and that day became known as Bloody Sunday. Even though that march was stalled, a couple of weeks later, they tried again, with Lewis walking alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This time, the route was protected by the Alabama National Guard, as an order from President Lyndon B. Johnson. It's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. First time an American president quoted the words of the theme song of the movement. Today, Lewis is the U.S. congressman from Georgia's 5th Congressional District, a position he has held for more than 30 years, where he continues to call for good trouble, a call many are still heeding to this day. This week, we spoke to producer Erica Alexander about documenting her hero, 
turns out that when you're as intentional as somebody like John Lewis, your whole life is a lesson. I mean, he understands that the most powerful nonviolent tool for change in the world and in any movement for a free democracy is the right to vote. Congressman Lewis believes that fighting for justice sometimes means getting into good trouble. As in, not just on Capitol Hill, but also in the streets. Over the course of his life, he has been arrested over 40 times, most of which happened during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. But five of those happened while he was a member of Congress, when he protested on immigration, against apartheid in South Africa, and against genocide in Darfur. The film highlights how some of the challenges Lewis has fought against for his entire life, like voting rights and racial equality, are still fights that are happening today. And the lessons John Lewis learned from these challenges may still be relevant for millennials or Gen Zers who are protesting against racial injustice and police brutality. In order to change something that is so built into the DNA of what America is and now the world because colonization has done it to the world, then uh, that means this generation has to put some skin in the game. And I also want to give some props to this generation so smart and brave, so powerfully putting themselves forward to be new architects of America. Things do change, but they don't change because we wish them so we do the work. John Lewis' Good Trouble is directed by Don Porter and produced by Erica Alexander and is available now in select theaters and on demand. There are forces in America today want to take us back, but we're not going back. We're going forward. And that's all for Skim This. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. In the meantime, let us know what questions you have about what's going on in the news right now. You can email us at audio at or call and leave us a voicemail at 646-461-6370. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.